there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people. And today, my guest is Luke Yankee. He is a playwright and director. His show is called Marilyn, Mom, and Me. And it's an autobiographical story about his mother, who is the actress Eileen Heckert, and the time that Eileen, his mother, worked with Marilyn Monroe on the movie Bus Stop. And uh, Luke is also a character, and it's uh, an examination of the relationship between his mother and Marilyn, but how that sort of resonated through all of their lives. And uh, I haven't seen the play. It hasn't opened yet, but I got to read the script. And because I had recently done a big research project on Marilyn Monroe, writing about her for Even the Rich, I was very intrigued by the subject matter, and I just found a lot uh, in the play that I related to, and I'm very excited to see it in person, and I was so excited to talk to Luke about it. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by Bounce Fabric Software. No, it's not. I don't have any sponsors. It's just me. Um, I do it. I have no... Yeah, I'm not... Procter & Gamble has never heard of me, Um, but I do it because I love it. I find it really meaningful and fun and fulfilling, and I hope you guys get something out of it, too. And if you do, and you want to help out the podcast a little bit, there are two things you can do. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. Help me cover my expenses. Also, I told the story recently of how my dog needed an emergency surgery to get like this mass of hair and other stuff out of his stomach. And uh, some of you donated uh, to the virtual tip jar to, for what I like to call, get the hair baby out of Enzo fund. Because uh, he, he had gotten um, into, after the exterminators come, both of the dogs in our house, my roommate's dog and mine, got really sick, and then it uh, ended up building to a point where Enzo had this thing in his belly. But he's doing good. And thank you for the people that donated in honor of Enzo. The other thing you can do is become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the Derek and Romaine banner, uh, lots of fun LGBTQ shows. And for a monthly fee, you get my show early, and you get all these other great shows. So you can learn about that at DNRStudios.com. All right, that's enough of the plugs. Here now is the interview with Luke Yankee. Joining me now via Zoom from Palm Springs, California, it's Luke Yankee. He is the writer and director of the new play, Marilyn, Mom, and Me, which opens at the International City Theater in Long Beach on February 16th. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dennis. Happy to be here. Well, when the publicist that you work with, who I know and uh, often sends me great clients, uh, sent me this, I was really intrigued because a couple of years ago, maybe 2022, I did a deep dive into Marilyn Monroe for a podcast oh. I was writing for called uh, Even the Rich. So I did four episodes about her life. I, you know, I dug deep. So I find her fascinating. I, yeah. I love her. I think <laughs> the more you learn about her, the more you respect her and the more you love her. So this this story is about your mother's experience with her and your experience with your mother's experience of Marilyn. So how would you describe the play to someone who knew nothing about it or nothing about you and your story? Well, I love, first of all, I love the fact that you did a deep dive into Marilyn. And actually, while I'm sure you did a lot of research, I probably have some stories you haven't heard. Oh, I'm sure. Because, you know, <laughs> so- the longer somebody like that is, has been gone, the, the stuff just kind of gets re- there's not a lot of new, you know, it's hard to find new stuff and because it's everyone and somebody like her that there's been so many books written about her. So um, having that personal connection, I think for you is, is fantastic. Yes. Thank you. So my mother was the actress Eileen Heckert who was in the theater hall of fame and won the Academy Award for the film Butterflies Are Free. And uh, in a career that spanned over 50 years, she played Marilyn Monroe's best friend in the film, A Bus Stop. And Dennis, to the day my mother died, she could never talk about Marilyn without bursting into tears. And my mother was known for playing these hard-boiled, tough-as-nit kind of characters. And that's pretty much who she was. So the fact that Marilyn affected her that deeply... I knew there was really something there. So I started doing some research and found all of these similarities that really hadn't occurred to me before and wrote this piece about uh, a 40-something Luke who is, uh, yes, I am a character in it, who is uh, early on in the play, he learns that his mother is dying of lung cancer. And he wants to get at some basic truths about their relationship before she passes. And he chooses to do so by unearthing her very complex friendship with Marilyn Monroe during the shooting of Bus Stop. And 
at the time that Marilyn did Bus Stop, she was one of the biggest stars in the world. And she had taken the year off before that to study at the Actors Studio in New York with Lee Strasberg. And she had become the poster child for method acting, where one has to feel everything organically. And since my mother was playing her best friend, Marilyn was determined to make my mother her best friend. And at first, Mom was like, okay, who's this starlet who's glomming on to me and making me feel very <laughs> uncomfortable? Right. But, but then the two of them really wound up bonding. And what I talk about in the play is the fact that they really kind of bonded through their wounds and through the language, language of woundology. Because for all that both of they achieved, uh, everything that, that both of them achieved in their lives, neither of them ever truly felt that they deserved a place at the table. And partially that was because of the fact that they were adopted. Both and of them were. Bo- Your mother yes. was as well. Interesting. Exactly. And both of them had huge abandonment issues as a result of that. Mm. And, uh, and a very traumatic childhood. So I think there was a sense that my mother wanted to save her. And I know other people had a similar feeling like that about Marilyn. She tended to bring that out in people. And for, as you mentioned earlier, for as much as there's been written about Marilyn, there is very little written about her relationship with another woman, and particularly another woman who was a peer. I mean, of course, there's things about her acting coaches and all of that, uh, s- several of whom were female. But to my knowledge, there really isn't anything else about, uh, you know, a, a contemporary colleague in uh, in the entertainment industry. Well, you so, have this line in the play that that resonates with what you just said, which is she had this way of making you feel like you were solely responsible for her life. Um, yes. And I, I, you see that in her uh, performances sometimes and also in like when you think about her yeah like you want to take care of Marilyn and your mother felt that as well I take it absolutely and uh, another thing that I talk about is that this is the as I mentioned she was the biggest star in the world at this time and yet Dennis she wanted what my mother had she wanted to be taken seriously right. as a legitimate actress she wanted children and she wanted a stable marriage so, you know, it's not looking back now, it's not surprising to me that the two of them connected. And of course, so many women were threatened by Marilyn. Right. And but there was no reason for my mother to be threatened by her. So there's a line in the play where she's where Marilyn says, women don't seem to like me very much. I, I can't imagine why. Right. <laughs> and yet to the outside world, it's obvious why, except that wasn't the issue with my mother. Yeah. So the character of Luke has conversations with his mother about Marilyn. Did you have those conversations or were you sort of using research and uh, your imagination to sort of create them? Some of both. Yeah. Um, I certainly heard the stories when I was a kid. And as I said, you know, whenever she would talk about Marilyn, she would burst into tears. But so that's sort of a conglomeration of the two. But the interesting thing, Dennis, is that I started out to write a play about my mother and Marilyn. And I wound up writing a play that is every bit as much about my mother and me and about very complex mother-son relationship, uh, kind of, you know, through the lens of her shooting bus stop and her relationship with Marilyn. And I explored the fact that she was very hard on me as a kid. And I started, from the time I started acting at age 11 and doing children's theater in the basement of the YMCA, she came to see every crappy thing I did and would critique me as if I were Laurence Olivier at the Old Vic. Yeah, it's in the play. She's tough. She's like, don't do that. Like, wow, like merciless. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And part of that, I realize in retrospect, was about making me a better actor and making me stronger and toughening me up for the business. But also... One of the things I explore in the play is the fact that part of it had to do with the fact that she never really believed that she was loved. So how could she give what she hadn't experienced? Right. Gosh, that's interesting. Um, A lot of times with well-known people, especially with movies and things like that, it's a very intense relationship during the shoot, and then they just disappear. It's like they vanish. And I think that kind of happened with your mother and Marilyn. Like, they weren't really friends after the shoot. Did you get a sense that that hurt her or was that like she chalked it up and that was sort of normal? Um, it sounds like well, they were quite close and then it was over. 
Yes, definitely. As you say, and that often happens in, in many sorts of work and especially in the entertainment industry. But also keep in mind, Marilyn was dead six years later. Yeah. So there wouldn't have been that long for them to have, uh, you know, connected and, and remained, remained close anyway. Yeah. In my research of Marilyn, things that don't always get a lot of attention is how she started her own production company and yes. was really groundbreaking in that way. And that's in your play. Um, yes. Also, her, she really wanted to be an artist. Like she thought like an artist. She wanted to be a good, serious actor. She was really driven by that. Um, and she's so good. Like even in the yeah. the lighter comedies, like you watch her and you're like, is that a special effect? Like she is magical. And she really is. Long takes. Like it's not like, oh, they cut around her and she's pretty. Like mm-hmm. long ma- – and even her musical comedy stuff, like yes. her body positions and dance, like she looks like a – and her singing, she's always on pitch. Like sometimes modern actors will do a musical and they don't come close to what she was doing. But she's never thought of as like a great musical comedy star. Anyway, I love Marilyn is the point. Yes, no, absolutely. And and one of the points, Dennis, about what you're saying that I talk about in the play is that when she started doing uh, musical films, she went to uh, a man uh, who was a jazz musician. And in those days, jazz was that thing that the kids listened to, right. you know, in the 1950s. And he said to her, he, they worked a little bit on technique and such, and he said, you need to learn about phrasing. So there is this up-and-coming artist named Ella Fitzgerald, and I want you to get a copy of her Gershwin album. And before I work with you again, I want you to listen to it 100 times. Wow. And she did. And she did. And that's how she not only fell in love with Ella and was totally starstruck by Ella, but also, and, and of course, they became friends later on. But uh, but it also that is an example of just what you're talking about of how serious she was about her work. And again, you know, having her own production company, Marilyn Monroe Productions. I mean, in this day and age, we sort of take that for granted. But back then, there's a line in the play where uh, the Joshua Logan character says, "Can you imagine anything as ludicrous as an actor having their own production company?" Yeah, <laughs> because in the in the 50s, that just wasn't done. And certainly it's commonplace today. Now, the Ella Fitzgerald story where Marilyn really supports her and gets her into this club and says, yes. I'll come every night if you book her. Your mother was around for that? Because that is in the she play. Mm-hmm. Did yes, she end she up was. going to the club and seeing Marilyn perform? She did. Uh, j- oh, just wow. a thumbnail. A, a thumbnail version of that story is that um, she loved Ella. And uh, Ella was playing real kind of second-rate clubs at the time. Right. So Marilyn went to the owner of the Macombo, which was the hottest club in L.A. at the time, and tried to get Ella Fitzgerald booked. And he said, uh, no, we're not interested. And she thought it was a racial thing. But the more they explored it, he real- uh, Ella, uh, Marilyn realized that it was because the owner of the Macombo felt Marilyn was uh, felt Ella rather was too shall we say full figured. Right. He liked pretty. Macombo. He liked pretty. Exactly. Pretty. Uh, he had Earth yeah. Kids and yeah. you know people like that. You know Joyce Brandt. She wasn't and hot enough. Exactly. Right. Yeah. She wasn't. She wasn't a sex pot. Right. So Marilyn said, "I will make you a deal. If you book Ella Fitzgerald for ten nights, I will buy a ringside table every night." And I will fill it with the hottest stars in town. And I'll try to come myself every night that I can. But when I'm not there, I will fill the table with every celebrity in in Hollywood. I mean, the publicity alone was crazy, you know. Right. So, um, so he did, and and she was true to her word. And Ella never had to play a second-rate club again. And Ella said that she felt that she owed a great deal of her career to Marilyn because of that. And there's a I, my weekend place here in Palm Springs, I was talking to a gentleman out here named Jeffrey Mark, who is somewhat of an authority on Ella Fitzgerald, and he's written an amazing biography of her. And I got together with him as I was starting to work on this play, and I said, Jeffrey, you know, when did this happen in the context of, of Bus Stop? I'm, I'm just curious. And he got this Cheshire cat grin on his face, and he said, it happened in 1956 during the shooting of Bus Stop, and your mother was one of the guests at the Macombo. So you well, didn't know that until I he didn't. T- know oh my that. gosh! 
You could have knocked me over with a feather when he told me that. Right, because they were shooting in Phoenix. Right, they were shooting in Phoenix, so they must have gotten back here at least one night, you know, like Well, they they shot the rodeo scenes in Phoenix. Oh, okay, okay. But then they shot the interiors, the dressing room scenes, et cetera, uh, on a soundstage at at, at Fox. It makes sense. So you didn't know that your mother had gone to one of those shows until he told you. I did not. Wow. It's crazy. That's incredible. Um, given that your mother is in the theater, uh, even in that different time, it was mm-hmm. a little bit surprising to me how not accepting of you she was when you came out. Like she had some harsh words, at least in the play. Were yeah. you surprised that it was she wasn't able to go from all those people you work with and like 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 that? Were you surprised how um, how unaccepting I, she was initially? Yes. Yes, I was. I was. And that had to do with the fact that, you know, I came out to my parents at 17. And, you know, it's one thing when... That's early uh, for that it is. time. It right? is. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing when all of her directors, her dressers, sure. except are gay. But it's another when it's her fair-haired golden boy, her baby. Right. And so... And also, you know, in that era, Dennis... When you look at the, there were no gay role models. I mean, most of the gay people that she knew were very unhappy. They desperately wanted families or kids and they they wanted to be accepted, you know, or they were alcoholic or suicidal. I mean, she didn't, and, and she didn't want that kind of a life for me. And so from a place of fear and a place of, um, not wanting me to make that choice <laughs> as if it were a choice, which right. we all know now. But uh, she was very harsh. Yeah, and she was saying, her, like, it repulses me, it disgusts like, wow. Yeah, she did. She did. And it took her a long time to come around. And um, But over the years, you know, flash forward many, many years to the point where uh, when she literally was dying of cancer in 2000, and... Um, uh, my husband of, of 29 years, Don Hill, she absolutely adored him. So as she was dying, and nobody knew that she was dying yet at this point, she was going to take her own sweet time and tell us when she was good and ready. I called her to check on her, and she was sort of hemming and hawing, and she finally said, do you think Don would want to call me mom? And I wow. said, well, I'm sure he'd be very touched. You, you could ask him when we come home at Christmas in two months. She said, no, I'd be too afraid of the rejection if he said no. So you ask him and you tell me what he says. So I called him and he called her an hour later at the hospital. And he said, hi, mom. Oh. And he said, oh, that's what I wanted to hear. So to go from this very harsh reaction yeah. to um, you know, I give her a lot of credit, too, for sure. coming around and changing her tune. Yeah, that's remarkable. Talk to me about the character of Rosetta. I thought she was really interesting, and especially given your mother's attitudes around homosexuality and, like, the contrast um, with her friend Rosetta. So talk to me about well, that. First of all, I just have to say, a little side note here, I am so impressed that you have read the play. I mean, I've been doing a lot of interviews and such, and you're the only one who has, so <laughs> good on um, you. I, yeah, I like to do interviews, and I like to, I feel like each one is an opportunity to ask people questions, and like, I don't know, I just find it my happy place, and so, and I find these themes and ideas really interesting, and um, yeah, so thank you. I get uh, into I, it, but thank you for appreciating I, it. I am honored uh, and Amanda. flattered that you yeah, took the yeah, time yeah. and trouble to do oh, that. I have a list of questions. <laughs> Clearly. My, my clipboard is full. Uh, yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So uh, the character of Rosetta actually came to the play later on because um, Rosetta Lenoir was uh, very influential in uh, as an actress in the theater movement in L.A. And, and Rosetta was about diversity casting long before such a thing existed. And, in fact, Actors' Equity has the Rosetta Lenoir Award for diversity, which was obviously named in her honor. And some of your uh, uh, viewers and listeners might know her from things like playing um, the grandmother on um, – Family Matters, you know, which was one of right. the first African-American sitcoms, or, or rather an early one. And uh, and again, you know, she went all the way back to doing things like playing one of the witches in Orson Welles' Voodoo Macbeth. And, uh, uh, and for much of her career in a number of Broadway shows, she played the sassy black mate. 
because that was the only thing she could get cast in for many, many years. But again, you know, she was, she also, she had been on tour with my mother in the 1940s. And um, there a lot of times, especially in the 40s, it's like, well, where are we staying uh, next week, Rosie? And Rosie said, well, you're staying at the such and such hotel, but I can't stay there. I'm going to have to find some boarding house or something. And so mom would say, okay, Rosie, you find a boarding house and I will stay there with you. And she wasn't doing it to make a statement about civil rights or anything like that. She was doing that to support her friend. Yeah. And because she didn't want her friend to be alone in a, a lousy part of town, you know, in some of these uh, uh, these cities that were not very sensitive to African-American performers at the time. And so she would go to the restaurants where Rosetta could go and uh, would stay at the hotels and such where she was accepted. And, you know, it was they had a tremendous bond. And she was also because my mother was such a tough cookie. Rosetta was also one of the few people in her life and for her entire life who could sort of look her in the eye and say, hecky, cut the shit. Right. And go, oh, oh, OK. Got it. You know? They had a so, falling out, though. Right. In your play. Over was it over you coming out? What was it over? I can't remember. Uh, it was really more over um, at the time. It was in the 1950s, right? And Rosetta was also someone who felt that uh, loyalty was a huge trait right. to her. And if she felt like someone was being disloyal to her as a friend, that was it. The door was closed. And when my mom became I wouldn't exactly say obsessed, but when she was working with Marilyn and you know, it was all about Rosetta was like, well, Marilyn, this Marilyn, that when did you get so highfalutin, you know, drinking sure. I'm sure Harold, you yes, know, because she's like the sun. Marilyn is like the sun. Like yeah, it, you cannot Precise. resist it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, a lot of people got burned by that. sun. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> and, and so mom was like, well, she's an actress I'm working with. And right. Rose said, Marilyn Monroe is more than an actress. She's got a hold on you. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I'll forget her the minute the film is over. Well, and as we know, that's why I wrote the play is that didn't exactly happen. But again, you know, mom and, and Rosetta patched things up after uh, after a short period of time and, um, you know, went on and again, had a relationship of, of great friendship up until the time. I believe Rosetta was like in her early 90s when she passed away. Wow. And yeah. Did you know yeah. Rosetta? Oh, I adored Rosetta. It was so funny because Rosetta was a very dark-skinned African-American woman, and she was quite short. And I'm six foot three and very blonde and waspy looking. And Rosetta, when we'd be introduced to people, Rosetta would wrap her arms around me and say, this is my son. Mm -hmm. And people would sort of look at them like... What? <laughs> I, and of course, Rosetta had her own son, that uh, Jack, who she was very devoted to. But, but you know, she thought of me like an, another child and my brothers. And, and she was she was extraordinary. So you are the youngest of, of the children in your family. Yes. Where yes. were you born in relation to bus stop? Had you been born yet or was it right after? Because I was a I confused about that. I had not been born yet. It was several years after. And in fact, one of the things I talk about in the play is that, you know, there, there's a wonderful photo of Marilyn and my mom and, you know, holding my brother Philip. And I was not born at the time. And, and sometimes people are sort of devastated. It's like, what? That, that's not you? And in fact, one, I, I explain that in the play and the fact that I would see that picture as a little boy and I really wished that that was yeah. me. And I kind of longed to have Marilyn as my mother because she was so amazing with children and so loving and nurturing. And some of the things that my mother could be sometimes, but it wasn't always in her nature to be. Well, and it's very poignant to see the picture, not only in relation to your family, but Marilyn wanted kids and miscarried and like it was a big desperately and, and would have been wonderful with them. And so to see that picture it just brings up all kinds of different things what do your brothers remember about Marilyn do they talk about like being at the hotel in Phoenix or whatever it is um it, not a great deal but I remember a story my brother Mark who's the oldest um there was uh, after they had got back home back to Connecticut where my parents lived 
And there was that wonderful photo on the mantelpiece of Marilyn and my two brothers and my mom. And we had a cleaning lady who came in for a little bit. And she's looking just as my brother Mark is going by on his tricycle. Uh, the cleaning lady turns to my mother and says, is that who I think it is? And Mark riding by on his tricycle at age four says, of course, it's Marilyn. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Get over it. Get used to it. Exactly. We've all, we've yeah. all, yeah, that's, a, that's the thing that happened. Who else would it be? Yeah. <laughs> you write about the Prince and the Showgirl press conference, which happened during bus stop. But yes. uh, Lawrence Olivier was being a pain in the ass and Marilyn found yes. this cute way to undermine him where, with, where she accidentally broke her spaghetti strap dress, which, uh, was in the research I did when I was writing about her. Was your mother there or was that just happened during that timing? Was she at that press conference? It, Marilyn asked her for moral support to go to the press conference. Yeah. Wow. So she was yeah. there at that amazing thing. Like yeah, all she of these was. iconic moments. And your yeah. mother confirmed to you that, oh, yeah, she did that on purpose. Because it was a thing of like, oh, was it an accident or did she do it on purpose? Like, I don't know. She, in my research, I don't know if it was confirmed either way. I, I don't know. I tend to believe it was very much on purpose. Yeah. Because basically, I mean, Olivier was like, well, who's this blonde bimbo? And wouldn't let, was totally overriding Marilyn, wouldn't let her answer any of the questions. And uh, uh, was just being kind of a bit of a bully. Yeah. And so at one point, she just sort of reaches up to scratch her neck. And <laughs> to the way I've heard the story is she sort of pulled something and one of her spaghetti straps broke. Right. And so, so she grabs her, her left breast, you know, just in the nick of time. And she's saying, Oh, how embarrassing. Excuse me. Do any of you ladies in the press car have a safety pin? And of course the next day, all the papers could talk about was Marilyn's left tit falling out in the middle of the press conference. Yeah. So Olivier was furious. And she's so much better than he is in that movie. Like so much, better. so much better. And he was such a jerk to her. Um, but she was also like, from my research, very kind to people. She was troubled, but she was mm -hmm. nice to fans. Like she was warm. She wasn't a jerk of a person. And I, I was really touched by that. Had wonderful uh, moments with fans and people that worked with her and and stuff like that. So that's another one. My Marilyn, my Marilyn takeaways. Yes. Uh, this is just a random question, but your last name is Yankee. What is it like to have Yankee as a last name? <laughs> well, people often wonder if it's my real name. And yes, it is. Uh, my father, Jack Yankee, was an insurance broker in Connecticut. And the story that I've always heard is that it was Norwegian and originally spelled J-E-N-C-K-E. Okay. Yankee. You know, okay, yeah, uh, but uh, but and, and I always say it was that man at Ellis Island who changed it. I don't think it actually was. But uh, as you can imagine, I've heard every conceivable joke. And uh, but my favorite one was an actor I worked with years ago when I was still acting. And he said it reminded him of one of those bad Westerns where the scruffy little guy hobbles into the saloon and says, clear the saloon, boys. Luke Yankees are coming to town. <laughs> Right? Do they people assume you're a Yankees fan? Does it ever? Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. They right. do. Yes, yeah. indeed. I mean, I've heard every. It, yeah. it sounds like a porno star. I mean, I've heard everything right. you could possibly imagine. Well, it's catchy and memorable, so that's. <laughs> well, good. thank you. Um, when it comes to casting, what is it like to cast somebody to play your mother and yourself? You know, it was um, with the guy who plays me. It, it was funny. It was uh, one of my dearest friends, a wonderful Emmy-winning actor named Brian Rohan. And we were actually floating in my pool out in Palm Springs. And about four and a half years ago, I said, you know, I have this idea for a new play. And you, I mean, we have such a similar sensibility. We don't necessarily look alike, but we have a similar sensibility. I said, you might be really interested in casting to play me. I have no idea who I would find to play mom. But uh, but you might be interesting to play me. It's like, oh, my God, I'd be so flattered, and that sounds wonderful. So one of my plays was being done at the Last Frontier Theater Conference out in uh, up in Valdez, Alaska. And um, I uh, love I, that they're doing theater in Valdez, Alaska. I used to go on wonderful. cruise ships, and we would dock in Valdez. And I, if there was one stoplight, I would be surprised. And they're doing theater. I love it. They have a wonderful theater festival up there. Um, yeah. And, uh, boy, they, I mean, in the past they had Edward Albee and Tony Kushner. I mean, they get some amazing people. Oh, that's wild. And 
So I was at this theater conference and I saw this woman do a play about uh, an older Harriet Beecher Stowe. And Laura Gardner was her name, is her name. And there was something about her quality and her look. I was like, she could play mom. So I talked to her afterwards and said, you know, I have this idea for a play. And the minute she got back from Alaska, she's like, when are you sending me that script? When are you sending? I was like, Laura, I haven't written it yet. Get off my back. But when I did read it, she would write it. She was one of the first people I sent it to. And um, she's been extraordinary. I mean, she's constantly saying, send me one of your mom's episodes of the Mary Tyler Moore show. I'm trying to find this old thing from Playhouse 90. Can Do you have a copy of that? I mean, she's probably seen as much, if not more, of my mother's work at this point than I have, which yeah. is really extraordinary. What are the things she gets that are like, oh, that's it? Like those little, is it a vocal thing? Is it a physical thing? Is it a, an attitude? What is the thing where you're like, yes. It's kind of all of the above. And the thing is, because since this play goes back and forth between uh, 1999, when, you know, Luke is interviewing his dying mother, and uh, 1956 during the shooting of Bus Stop, and it's done practically on a bare stage. And so it's all up to the physicality of the actors. I mean, you know, is she playing Eileen in her 80s one moment, and then she's suddenly playing Eileen in her 30s the next moment? So, um, but it, it's funny because I, I talked about how tough my mother could be on me at times. And again, you know, she was very loving and and really a wonderful mom. But again, you know, could really, I, I would say she was famous for going fire ready aim. You know, she would say what was on her mind and then she thought about what she said. <laughs> so, I never heard that expression before. That's pretty funny. Yeah. All right. I, that paints so, a picture. So I would say to Laura, um, in that moment when you're criticizing Luke, you need to be more harsh. And she'd say, really, honey? I'd say, yeah, that's the way it was. And she'd sort of shake her head and say, okay, if that's what you want. And then she would totally blast him. And then, right. be, oh, shit. Oh, my God. That's it. I'm having an acid flashback to when I was 12 years old. Right. <laughs> what are your memories of going to work with your mom? Or, or like, like being on, you know, backstage in theaters? Yeah. Or like, what are the most vivid ones? The most vivid one, Dennis, is probably when I was about 12 years old and she was doing Butterflies Are Free on Broadway, which, of course, was a long run. And this was before she did the film or anything else. But um, I had seen the show many times. And so one night, I don't know why, or I was in the city with her, but I was uh, just hanging out in the dressing room with her dresser. And she came off stage after the last scene and she had tears in her eyes. And she was very subdued. And I said, hi, mommy. She's like, hello, darling. I said, mommy, what's wrong? You seem so sad. And she said, well, I am. My child has just told me that he doesn't need me anymore. And I said, mommy, did you have a fight with brother Mark? She said, no, darling, my child in the play. And that was how I first learned what acting was. You first understood it. I first understood it, yeah. yeah. It was an incredible moment that I will never forget. How do you look at your interest in going into the arts, becoming an actor, becoming a writer, related to your observing of your mother and her career? Was it something that made you, I want to do what she did, or you were just drawn to it of your own and she didn't like that? Like, how did those two things interact? Uh, I remember being a pretty little boy and saying, Mommy, when I grow up, I want to do what you do. Right. And at first she said, oh, honey, no, you don't. <laughs> not, in, not because she wanted to discourage me, but because she knew how tough it was. And then when I started doing, as I mentioned, you know, started doing these uh, roles in the basement of the YMCA and playing all these leading roles and you know, playing things like, you know, King Arthur at age 12 and Tevya at age 13. And she would give you like two pages of brutal notes. Like oh, they're in the play and I was two. like, more oh my than gosh. Two. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, she knew that I was serious and she was trying to make me a better actor. Which, of course, she did. So, you know, she was she was very supportive. I mean, she did it in a way that was sometimes I think of these like fathers uh, with their kids in Little League. Right. You know, really, really tough on them. And come on, run faster and be right. stronger. I mean, she would do that in her own way. 
not to be mean, but to make me better. Right. Yeah. And you could see that eventually for what that was. Eventually. Yeah. 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 Not always in the moment. Um, (laughs) Not in the moment. The actress who plays Marilyn in your play has played Marilyn a few times. Talk to me about her. She's she's extraordinary. Her name is Alicia Soper, and she is Ryan Murphy's go-to person for Marilyn. Uh, She was in Feud, had a cameo in that. She had a a lovely character arc on uh, American Horror Story about a, a character arc with Marilyn and JFK. And she has read every book done. I mean, boy, she is just, I think, one of the world's greatest authorities on Marilyn. She has nailed the voice. She has nailed the walk. Uh, I, I mean, she is absolutely extraordinary. And I, I'm, I'm not just saying this, but so many people say she is the best Marilyn they have ever seen. I mean, she is really phenomenal. And for her, she also has been playing Marilyn for a number of years at Universal Studios and walking around and taking her picture with the tourists and all of that. And a lot of times those lookalikes, um, well, to be honest, they really can't act. Yeah, they may it's a different look, skill. But yeah, It's a totally different skill. But she has the whole package. And so for her, after, you know, doing, to have a sustained role as Marilyn, rather than a, a small role on a TV show or something, uh, not to negate that, but for, this is like a dream come true. I mean, to have a full role as Marilyn and to show a range of emotions and to show how smart she was, to show what a hard worker she was, uh, this is just a gift to her and she is a total gift to this production. Well, I just saw the clips on your website and some of the pictures. I get this feeling that she's loving being her. Like, Absolutely. Like that, that it's not like, oh, I guess I got to do my Marilyn thing again. Like there's this sort of like thing that this light inside her that's like, oh, this is this is my thing. And I'm yeah, I, no. it, like that Marilyn is her art form in yeah, a way. Totally. Like, yeah, it's, totally. it's kind of it comes through. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the, the other actor I just want to mention briefly, since I've touched on all the others, a wonderful actor named Noah Wagner, who is really a staple in uh, Southern California theater. And he has played leads in two of my other shows, two of my other original plays. And he plays a variety of roles. He plays Joshua Logan. He plays Arthur Miller. Uh, he plays Laurence Olivier. And he is just a wonderful actor. And I'm just – the thing is I've been working with these people so long now since most of them have done all of the readings and workshops, et cetera. And uh, except for Jacqueline Lorraine Schofield, who plays Ella Fitzgerald and Rosetta, who is new to the project and absolutely wonderful. But with all of the others, it's wonderful to be able to say – Remember that that thing you did in the workshop in Austin on that particular line? Yeah, do that. So, wow. So you've done it in different cities, workshops. I know you were doing things on Zoom, right, during the pandemic? And Yes. Yeah. We did uh, We did a couple of readings in New York. We did a reading at Stella uh, at the Manhattan Theater Club. We did a reading at Stella Adler Studios in L.A. Um, and then the pandemic came along, and I wanted to find a way to keep the play alive. So I did two benefit readings for uh, one for the Actors Fund and one for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And both uh, those two combined raised over $5,000 for people who needed help you know, during the pandemic. I mean, actors who were suddenly out of work and technicians and all of that. And so I was very pleased with that. And then again, you know, when the pandemic was over, it had won this workshop, uh, won first plot prize in a workshop uh, and down in Austin. And so then a company called Southwest Theater Productions. So once the pandemic was over, they flew us down and we did a reading and down there, a workshop production. And uh, now so thrilled to have this full production at International City Theater. Yeah, it's and happening. Also, there's, there's also a lot of interest for Broadway, I must say. That's awesome. And I'm very excited. I've got some incredible Broadway producers flying in to see this. And I, I just, I'm over the moon that it's getting the kind of attention it is. I love it. So you write, obviously, in the play about your mother. What what was your father like? What what were the ways that he sort of influenced you? And what do you take he, from him? Oh, boy. He was an amazing man. J- Jack Yankee, as I mentioned earlier, was his name. And he and my mother were married for 53 years, and which is very rare in show business. And he was such a kind, loving, gentle man. In fact, when I met my husband, uh, Don Hill, uh, I was talking to mom, and she said to me, 
Uh, and my father had been dead for several years at this point. And she said, is Don Hill the new man in your life? And I said, yeah. And as a matter of fact, I think I've found my Jack Yankee. Wow. And wow. she's like, I'm really, honey? Yeah. Because he just, he has this gentleness and this kindness and this sweetness uh, that so reminds me of my father. And he could put up with the show business craziness of it all, probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Which was a tall order in our yeah. family, believe me. In the play, your mother talks about giving things away after she passes. And there's earrings that Marilyn gave her that were very expensive. And that, I take yes. it, is, is a true story. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Did yeah. you see the earrings? Um, a uh, long time ago. Yeah. But um, uh, basically, uh, that the first day of shooting, Marilyn was wearing these very expensive earrings that Joe DiMaggio had given her. And so uh, she knew a few weeks later, she knew that mom's birthday was coming up. And she was like, well, I just I, I called Cartier and I ordered you a pair. And mom was like, Marilyn, I can't accept this. This is far too extravagant. And and Marilyn would do that. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's something kind of sweet and kind of sad at the same time. It, it, it wasn't like she was trying to buy my mother's love, but it was like she so desperately craved that acceptance yeah. by someone she considered a brilliant actress, you know, because Marilyn had seen so many of the things my mother had done on Broadway. And also my mother was kind of the flavor of the month because she had done the film The Bad Seed the year before, for which she was nominated for an Oscar and won the Golden Globe. And and so Marilyn gave her this pair of very expensive earrings to, um, uh, you know, to, to sort of uh, win her affection. And it's a very moving moment in the play. Yeah. And they, in the play, it says they go to Mary Tyler Moore after your mother passes. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they were, I take it, they were quite close. They were very close. Um, Mary did, well, mom played Mary's Aunt Flo on the old Mary Tyler Moore show. And who was this hard-bitten newspaper woman who had an affair with Lou Grant. And then um, Mary, when she had several attempts at other series after the Mary Tyler Moore show, there was one called Annie McGuire where my mother played her mother. And so, in fact, in my book, Just Outside the Spotlight, my memoir, uh, Mary even wrote the foreword to it. She was a lovely, lovely person and just gracious and warm. And uh, I adored Mary. And she and mom were very close and remain so uh, up until they both passed. Your mother played a lot of those characters that are kind of like the dames, the fr- like the, that say the thing. When you see modern movies and there's a character like that, you're like, oh, that's my mom's part. That was my, that, like, it's a certain thing. And you, we love those people there was mom there was thelma ritter yeah. there eve arden there was agnes moorhead who played those sort of dames you yeah. know and uh they yeah a lot of them and there were a lot of times that mom and elaine stritch were up for the same roles they were mom was very competitive with her in <laughs> fact when, when i when who did I was she drunk, hate in hollywood who did who were but, like uh, who were not her favorites um well, she had several run-ins with Betty Davis, and Betty Davis scared <laughs> the hell out of her. I mean, it wasn't that she hated her. She was, she was just, scared of her. Yeah, she was one of the few people I knew who could – they worked together three times, and she was one of the few people I knew who could uh, uh, make my mother burst into tears. Wow. She was – if my mother was tough, Betty Davis was tougher. Yeah. A bus stop is – Widely thought of as Marilyn's best work as an actor. Did your mother speak of the project like that? Did she talk about how good Marilyn was? Or or how did she feel about her work in the film, I guess, is my question. Basically, she had two sets of stories she would tell about Marilyn. The first one I already talked about where she would burst into tears and this woman who so needed to be taken care of. Right. You felt you were responsible for her life. The other set of stories was about this woman who could be very unprofessional, coming to the set late, not knowing her lines because she was so busy schmoozing with all the publicists and and all the press people. And so, um, you know, it sort of depended when and how you caught my mother, which set of stories you would hear about, Marilyn. When you you write about this in the play, you talked about it here. She cried when she you would bring her up. She would cry about Marilyn. Yes. Yes, she would. What was she crying about? What do you, because I think that's what the play's about. Like, what was it? Um, you know, I don't entirely know the answer to that, Dennis, but I've, 
with all the bits and pieces I put together, as I mentioned, I think it was the fact that she couldn't save her. Right. She couldn't take care of her the way Marilyn needed to be taken care of. And of course, I don't know that anyone really could. And also, I think, I think she saw certain elements of herself. Right. I mean, sense of not feeling wanted. That sense of being somewhat of a second-class citizen because you're adopted. Um, I think she, you know, there's a line late in the play where the Luke character says to her, says, why can't you admit that you're just like Marilyn Monroe? And of course, on the surface, these women could not have been more different. And yet, you know, I I think part of the reason that this play is getting the response that it is, and I couldn't be more thrilled about that, but is the fact that, you know, it really is about these very human emotions, how we all want to feel loved, we all want to feel accepted, we all want to be recognized for our work, and if we're an artist, especially, we need that recognition. But, um, I, you know, I really feel that she, gosh, she just, she felt so helpless around Marilyn and because she couldn't save her. And at the same time, it was as if she were looking in a mirror. Interesting. Yeah. Lots of parallels. Yes. Um, there's another theme that comes up in your play, and it's something I've been thinking about in relation to my own life, which is parents telling their children that they're proud of them. Yes. Like, I never got that from my father. And mm-hmm. I, ne- I, ne- I never got it even close. And yeah. I realize now at this age, that would have been nice. Like, it, it is something <laughs> that I could have benefited from greatly. Yes. And uh, maybe it's a generational thing, but your mother wasn't, wasn't uh, that wasn't something that rolled off her tongue very easily either, right? Well, you know, one of the things I talk about in the play is that, boy, she, I, I don't say this exactly, but she could tell everyone from the garbage man to the president of CBS how proud she was of me. And yet she never said that to me. And I knew on some level that she was. But we need but, to hear it. Yes, we do need to Why? hear it. Why? We do. Well, I think part of it, as you said, might have been a generational thing in terms of we don't want our children to get a swelled head and that sort of thing. And with, you know, the, the later generation, the you know, uh, I, I feel like sometimes it's almost the opposite is true. That, you know, they are told and the this sunshine's is out of their asses. Yeah. But, but that they are told so much, you can do anything, you're brilliant, et cetera, that, that if they aren't the president of the corporation by the time they're 25, they feel like something's wrong. Right. You know? But, um, and again, I know that's a terrible generalization, but, you know, I, I think it was a generational thing in our case. It's just like, no, you don't say that to your children or they will get arrogant. They will get egotistical. Yeah. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately and seeing, you know, in the culture in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote this play a while ago. You got through the pandemic. You've done the things. What does it mean to you to finally be having the world premiere? Oh, incredible. We have just finished the first week of rehearsals. And I finished uh, blocking the play on Thursday of this past week. And so, I, I mean, I really kind of go there in a lot of very personal ways. And one of the scenes towards the end of the play is when Eileen is dying and Luke is saying goodbye to his mother for the last time. And I wrote that scene just the way it happened. Mm. So to be sitting there working with these two actors that I love and have a shorthand with and with whom I'm very comfortable and basically to be reliving one of the pivotal moments of my life I got very choked up. Of course. And there was a moment there where I, I sort of couldn't get through it. And I just said, I- I'm sorry, I-, I need to take a moment here. And they're like, that's okay, honey, we get it. But, you know, I feel like not only is this the most important play I've ever done, because so much of it is my life, but also it's the most emotionally exhausting play I've ever done. I, you know, we're, we're I, we'll come home from rehearsals and I'll be going to bed at 830. Right. You're like, I'm out. I'm just so emotionally drained after reliving time and time again, these most, 
the, you know, the pivotal moments of my life, both the happy ones and the sad ones. There's also moments where Eileen and Luke are laughing together. And it's just, oh, yeah, you know, mom would sort of collapse into my arms this way when we were when you were telling a good joke about Marilyn or something. And uh, so it's really it's really profound. Yeah. And again, the fact that it's getting I mean, at the risk of sounding arrogant, it makes me think like Harvey Firestein is um, <clears throat> pardon me, is an acquaintance and um I, it makes me wonder if this is the way he felt when he was doing something like Torch Song Trilogy. Right. You know, when you're doing something that is so deeply personal. And because of the fact that it's so deeply personal, that's why people are responding to it the way they are. And I, I just could not be more thrilled about that. I love it. So tell people how they can come and see your show and learn more about it. So Marilyn, Mom, and Me is playing at International City Theater, the Equity Theater in Long Beach, California. And it is, uh, we start previews on Valentine's Day, February 14th. We open on February 16th, and it runs until March the 3rd. And you can get tickets through uh, ictlongbeach.org. Uh, and or if you go to my website, you can find out more information and see some clips from, the, uh, from some of the Zoom readings. And that is, uh, you can either go to lukeyankee.com or MarilynMomAndMe.com. You have your stuff down. I'm very impressed. Sometimes <laughs> people are like, oh, I don't know. Just go to look at the, go to Instagram. Like, like you're on it. I appreciate it. Um, here's my final thought. It's kind of a question. It's kind of not, but it's something that jumped out at me from the play. And right. I think it was a wonderful gift that your mother gave you. And I don't know if I'm going to get the context right. But in some note she wrote to you, I think you were performing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote down, go out on that stage and feel glad to be alive. Yes. I found that profound, like, that it's not just about doing a good performance. It's about being happy in your life where you are doing your thing. What does that line mean to you? Uh, Dennis, just even you repeating that line makes me very emotional. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, by the way, I cry in every podcast now. I don't know what it is, but it happens. <laughs> I'm on the verge. <laughs> but um, when I played King Arthur in Camelot at age 12, and after she gave me all of those copious notes and uh, you know, came back other times and told me that I had improved and such, she gave me a huge bouquet of flowers on opening night, and she had put ribbons in them saying things like Viva la King and Arthur and Guinevere. Oh, and, that's so beautiful. And, and all, all of that. And on opening night, she gave me a sterling silver medal of St. Genesius, who is the patron saint of actors. And she, my mother was very Catholic in that regard. And so she gave me this note, and it said, as you said, Go out on that stage tonight and feel glad to be alive. I love you, Mama. It's so beautiful. for, you know, all of the things, I mean, and, and it really, the play really runs the gamut. I mean, yes, there were certain things that maybe I wish would have been different, but other things that she did beautifully and she did in spades. And I, I do know, ultimately, that she loved me and was proud of me and was an amazing mom and an amazing actress. I love it. Well, I look forward to coming to see it. I'm going to come down there and see it. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you so much, Luke. Thank you, Dennis. Really been delightful. Thanks again to Luke Yankee. Check out his play, Marilyn, Mom, and Me. If you're in Southern California, you can learn more about that at MarilynMomAndMe.com. All right, so this happened. Speaking of theater, I went to see a really good show recently. I was so knocked out by it. I might go back. I might take a group. Anyway, if you're in Los Angeles, I saw this play called Mercury, and it's by a writer named Steve Yoki, uh, Y-O-C-K-E-Y. It's at the Road Theater Company, and it's like this crazy story about uh, there's a gay couple in the middle of it, a lesbian couple in the middle of it, some supernatural kind of weird stuff goes on, there's a bear. Like, it reminded me a little bit of, like, Martin McDonough's plays, like, uh, the Lieutenant of Inishmore, where it just, like, goes to this crazy place. Um, but I, I really uh, loved it, and I might go back. And uh, I think it's too late to do a podcast about it because it uh, it's not open that much longer. But um, uh, a woman I know that's a friend of my 
roommates, Anne Hearn Tobolowski directed it, and it's just so good. So, anyway, I'm high on theater is the point. Uh, I also want to get a plug-in for the Mismatch game. It's our Valentine's show. Heartbreak feels good in a place like this is the theme. I can't let that commercial go. I'll never let it go. Uh, and it's on February 10th at the LA LGBT Center's Renberg Theater, and tickets are going fast. We're, um, we're selling really well, and it might even sell out, but we've got Willem back from uh, New York and Drew Drogi. They were both there doing Titanic. And so they haven't done the mismatch game in quite a while, but they're coming back along with some other great people. Like uh, we've got Danielle Gaither is there doing Jada Pinkett Smith. Never done that before. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if there's going to be a red table. Uh, we've got Chris Pudlow doing Pee Wee Herman for the first time since Pee Wee past. So that's going to be kind of poignant. We've got Danny Casillas back as Reba Ariba. That's going to be delightful. And we've got Lori Tatooian who's doing Fran Drescher. She kind of worked up a Fran Drescher impersonation during the strike and I think she did it at a few different benefits or whatever. Anyway, uh, very timely. And so it's a really unique and a lot of new characters and I'm excited. So learn about that at LALGBTcenter.org and then click on events. Or you can get the link on my Instagram, Dennis C. Hensley. All right, that's enough for this week. I want to thank you so much for listening. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to Oscar Rosario for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Danos for Placement Music. Oh, and I want to give you an update on Enzo. He's doing pretty good. The donut thing can come off his neck soon, and uh, he seems kind of like his old self. So, yeah, wild, right? Uh, what a harrowing January. But um, he's, he's in there, and he's ready for adventure. So, And so am I. All right, so thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.